This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. The tragedy in Charlottesville is an important moment for journalism. A weekend expected to be tense turned chaotic, unsettling, and ultimately tragic. After a suspected white supremacist from Ohio plowed through a crowd of anti-racism counter-protesters, killing one woman and injuring 19 others, President Trump issued a string of statements that made it unclear who he blamed for the violence. You, you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody in wants response to, to that, that moral abdication by the commander-in-chief, news organizations across the board presented a united front. Collectively, they turned against the White House in a way that was direct and focused. Outlets liberal, mainstream, and conservative criticized Trump for failing to provide leadership at a time of national crisis. We're dedicating the entire episode to the media's response to last weekend's events in Charlottesville. First, we'll talk to CJR associate editor Brendan Fitzgerald about how local news covered the events, plus his personal experience working as a reporter in Charlottesville. Then we'll discuss the language journalists should be using in their coverage. CJR contributor Shaya Tayefe Mohajir explained why we should stop using the phrase alt-right in an article published on Monday. You can read all our Charlottesville coverage on CJR.org. So I left Charlottesville yesterday uh, afternoon late and drove with my family. Uh, we're heading um, up to New Hampshire for a little while. And so I am in the parking lot of uh, Holiday Inn Express and Suites in Easton, Pennsylvania. Um, it's it's really hot already, I, uh, but I, I, I don't feel right about running the car and having the AC going. So, I'm Brendan Fitzgerald, and yeah, I'm an associate editor at Columbia Journalism Review, where I oversee state and local journalism coverage. I moved to Charlottesville in 2002 for school. I uh, was there for four years and then stayed for another six, working as a reporter and editor at Seville Weekly, which is an alt-weekly paper that is on the downtown mall. Um, its current offices are about two to two and a half blocks from the site of the uh, car accident where Heather Heyer and other protesters were struck. So you left Charlottesville uh, for an extended duration, but recently moved back about a month ago. I did. Uh, I moved back at the beginning of July. Uh, and so we've been back about six weeks. For you, when the Unite the Right rally was kind of, I guess, started being publicized, how were local news organizations responding uh, to it? The coverage that I saw um, coming from local news outlets seemed largely concerned with trying to explain the rally and its participants. There were um, there were a few explainers that ran in the local press uh, that identified and expanded on the bios of some of the speakers who had planned to uh, address the uh, crowd there to attend Unite the Right. I think that what you saw in local outlets was maybe an effort to kind of detail for people who might not have known um, some more information about Richard Spencer or um, some of the other people who were slated to participate. An uh, interesting bit of trivia is that Richard Spencer is a uh, UVA graduate, and UVA is the college campus there that attracted uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazi marchers on Friday before the rally. So another thing that I saw was an editorial in the Daily Progress. The Daily Progress is the daily paper in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, in the 
days before, it was August 10th, so two days before the scheduled um, Unite the Right rally, that paper published an editorial that made a number of upsetting claims and, and arguments in which it tried to uh, apportion responsibility for this uh, this event and 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 for I should say too uh, for a greater sort of local cultural conflict around a statue of uh, Robert E Lee that was raised in the city in um, the mid 1920s. The progress uh, in, in in its editorial. Um, largely uh, attributes, uh, and that's a quote, responsibility for what it called a growing conflagration to a uh, city councilor in Charlottesville, um, a man named Wes Bellamy, uh, who is black, who is the only black city councilor on our um, five-person city council. In the year following his election, Wes Bellamy held a press event at Emancipation Park. Uh, It was formerly Robert E. Lee Park, and he held a press conference there in front of a statue in which he said, maybe it's time for this thing to come down. That event becomes the focus of this Daily Progress article published in the days ahead of the Unite the Right rally, and Bellamy's um, actions um, suggesting that a divisive and for many racist symbol come down was characterized as dropping a book of matches onto a gas field. This is kind of the very, very narrow scope this editorial takes. What I saw in Charlottesville is that a, a good number of people in the community were talking about this editorial. What were some of the responses like that you can kind of share with us? When I looked at the um, the progress editorial online, there, there were more than 130 comments, um, uh, many of which called the editorial racist in a very direct way. There were also people who... Um, attempted to counter that accusation and say that they felt the progress was being fair uh, in its argument, as well as its uh, apportioning of blame to a black city councilor. Outside of the uh, outside of the comments section, you know, there were plenty of people in Charlottesville who were uh, posting about this on Twitter. And so, you know, for the CJR piece, you, you did approach the editorial team at the Daily Progress. What was their response to you know, these allegations of racism you mentioned, um, you know, roll in kind of flaming the fire. After I sent my questions along, um, the publisher, Rob Dronick, did write and say, uh, we will not be responding to questions. So um, at that point, I think timing was less a concern and it was more, um, there are not going to be answers to the questions I put to them. Um, I was told to just sort of keep a watch on their editorial pages uh, in the future, which of course um, I will, and people in Charlottesville will as well. I should probably give some background on Charlottesville and on reporting in Charlottesville a little bit. I think it might be a little helpful. There are feelings of palpable racial tension in Charlottesville that definitely predate this rally and the violence that it fostered. To just focus so narrowly on this one on this one symbol is to really uh, miss the symptoms beneath it. So it sounds like the kind of controversy surrounding the statue is just emblematic of a much larger systemic problem within the city. Yes, I think that's uh, I, I think that is uh, accurate to say. Before Charlottesville, what was kind of the you know local news coverage of that? Uh, that really uh, that can vary from uh, from news outlet to uh, to news outlet. There have been 
a number of uh, strong efforts by a few news organizations in Charlottesville to cover the city's effort to provide uh, more affordable housing. And affordable housing in Charlottesville is a not only a, a, a huge uh, pressing issue, but it is very much bound to the city's racial history. And just kind of going back to the Daily Progress editorial, what do you think the editorial you know, means for the, the paper's role in Charlottesville? Let's see. What does the editorial mean for the paper's role in Charlottesville? Predicting that is difficult. Um, does this editorial mean that people will um, cancel their um, their subscriptions, that the progress will speak only to an audience that um, agrees with that sort of narrow perspective? I, I think that any local paper would be in a really perilous place if that were so. I also think that one of the driving concerns at the at the heart of the Unite the Right rally and the efforts to counter it by the city is one of ethics. I think that when you, as an editorial board, take an ethical stance and in taking that stance, you misapportion blame and you do not call out the local resident who was directly responsible for filing permits to convene Unite the Right in Charlottesville, and instead you focus on a black man who objected to the racist symbolism of a statue, you raise, for many readers, um, questions about your own ethics and how the progress uh, addresses those questions going forward. The publisher told us to keep watching. I guess we'll all have to. You've worked in Charlottesville for many years, um, and you know the community pretty well. What are your recommendations for journalists covering uh, the aftermath of the Charlottesville tragedy moving forward? What things have been missing from that coverage, and you know how can that be addressed? There are, I think, a few, a few general responses and a couple um, explicit ones. Um, one of the explicit um, things is this. Uh, this is not specific to the Daily Progress editorial, but it certainly. Um, uh, comes into play there. There has been a reference on a number of occasions to the former Lee Park, and this is after the city officially changed the name of this park to Emancipation Park. I was talking with my wife about this yesterday, and I said, when the, when a city changes a street name, and then someone comes from out of town and sees a new street sign, except no one in the uh, no one in the city uses that name, uh, that person might very well become lost. I think that when you continue to address a park by its former name, which was overwritten in a process that was community-driven, you are making a decision to persist in calling a place by its embattled and divisive and arguably racist name. Don't do that. It's as, it's as simple as that. Don't do that. Other general things that Charlottesville reporters should do um, to persist in confusing how we speak about those people that rallied for hateful purposes in Charlottesville uh, is a ridiculous thing. For me, I kept seeing this phrase alt-right, and I wondered if it um, was actually being used as something of a euphemism for the sort of long-standing racism. Uh, my name is Shaya Tayefe Mohajer, and I'm a journalist and an adjunct professor at USC Annenberg. A lot of what we heard early on about the alt-right was that they were, you know, sort of these basement dwellers who live with their moms and they're out of sight and they're out of mind and it's just sort of like an online movement of bullies who had somehow, you know, coalesced to voice all the same hatreds. 
Um, but after seeing Charlottesville, it was really sort of clear that the reality there was much more violent, much more cruel, um, and much more familiar. We've seen torches carried in the night in the South. We know what it means when, you know, people chant white power slogans and Nazi hatred and march through the South carrying torches. We know what that means. We're awfully familiar with it. Um, and I just felt like it was it was wrong to sort of offer anyone cover. And, you know, they should know, as we then knew, that they were white supremacists and that's how they should be described. Phrases like white supremacist or racist or white nationalist, um, you know, racist isn't terribly long, but calling someone a white supremacist, um, because we're more familiar with that term and how charged it is, um, offering media a name like the alt-right, giving them a nickname that's short, it fits in headlines well, it kind of, you know, captures a feeling of... um, Uh, the rising power of of Trump and right-wing politics. Um, It was very savvy of them to rebrand, you know, those same old hatreds this way. And I think that we see that, you know, it's a well-utilized term because, you know, it works well in sentences. Um, There is sort of like a ticky-tacky thing that we do as journalists where we're always trying to form the cleanest, tightest, shortest, Um, most quickly descriptive thought and um, alt-right sort of offered that crutch. I think, you know, unfortunately, like it it offers a a PR cover. It's like, you know, new Coke. It's a new spin on something that's so familiar. Um, But really, the only thing that's new is that these guys are younger. They're the next generation of it. Their means of communication, you know, they're not newslettering and, you know, going around town to talk to people. They're, yeah, they're on the internet. Um, so the danger is, is that we don't identify a persistent social ill in a way that even they recognize it. I don't know that, you know, everyone in the alt-right really knows. You you heard that confusion, in a sense, from the president saying, you know, no, there were some good people there. And a lot of people really responded to that negatively and, you know, rightly. Like, it's it's hard to say there's a, there's a few good people at the Nazi march. Um, but, yeah, maybe they're confused. Maybe they don't know what they're being seen as. Um, but that's not who I'm concerned about serving. I'm concerned about serving people who are curious about this movement, people who want to know what this movement means in their towns. And I think it's the media's duty to tell them that these are white supremacists. And, you know, if you, if you disagree with them, the consequences could be very, very bad. Before we go on, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey Pete, I have a serious dilemma. I am in need of a really good book. Well, that's convenient because I have in my hand a new fascinating story of America's pioneering broadcast journalist and global adventurer, Lowell Thomas, in The Voice of America. Tom Brokaw calls Voice of America a lively account of a legendary life. So Meg, read The Voice of America, new from St. Martin's Press. Moving on in our coverage of this weekend's chaos, we turn beyond CJR's shores. Joining me and Meg for the discussion will be CJR senior editor Christy Chisholm. 
And we're going to talk about perhaps the most striking piece of journalism to emerge from this weekend. That clip from a march of white supremacists through the University of Virginia campus last Friday evening comes from Vice News Tonight, which produced an essential piece of work first broadcast on Monday. It's called Charlottesville, Race and Terror, and is a 22-minute documentary that's been viewed over 30 million times on Facebook. If you haven't seen it, you absolutely should. Meg and Christy, we've all seen it. And Meg, what do you think makes it so impactful? I think first and foremost, access. Um, so the reporter Al Reeve uh, from Vice, uh, you know, was able to spend the entire weekend with this group of white supremacists. It's a group that we usually don't see offline um, in such large numbers um, and in such uh, chilling intensity. So what this documentary did, like in a very visceral way, was translate this online fringe community into this like offline, very apparent, very real thing. So I completely agree with you, Meg. And what really got me about this documentary, um, it is really a documentary more than it is evening news, like the typical format that Vice News follows. We all know that these online communities exist. And, and, and we know on some intellectual level, if not in our daily lives, that there are white supremacists in this country who, and the groups of them who never went away. I think that a lot of us, especially those of us who live in larger cities or who live in more progressive communities, it's this kind of um, abstract idea that there are still, that this country still has so many racists in it. Even if it's not completely abstract, it's not something we see every day. We don't interact with people on a daily basis who espouse these views. Yeah, I, I just think, you know, I think it, it put a face in, to an ideology that I usually, you know, I think of Richard Spencer, I think of David Duke, I don't think of you know, large quantities of people that look like those I might see on the street, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think that's what was so jarring is like, seeing the people in the film, I've seen those people, people that look like them in real life. I don't know. It's a sho shocking is certainly a word. So much of all of it is shocking. We should maybe be less shocked than we are because right? nothing about this is, is new, sadly. Some people may be in denial of it. Uh, other people may be kind of blissfully shielded from it. A lot of people in this country don't have the privilege of being shielded from it. So I think for people who have been fortunate enough in their lives to not be confronted with this on like a regular basis or a daily basis or haven't had to deal with this kind of hatred directed at them in their lives, I think seeing groups like that come together it took the idea of like the, you know, I don't know, neo-Nazi or, you know, racist out of of the past and, and the kind of abstract idea that like they exist in like the backwoods somewhere and and put it very front and center and that this is a part of the world that you live in right now. This is like these people say that they're going to be here in full force. They're coming back stronger next time, that this is nothing, that you should watch out because they're organizing and they're going to start protesting and being on the streets. So this is something that that's something that everybody needs to be quite aware of. This is not something that we any we no longer have the privilege of being able to think this exists in another community. This exists in some form in all of our communities. 
Yeah, hearing you guys talk about it and it reflects kind of the way I felt watching it was that there is some sort of visceral reaction that is emotional. It causes anger. It causes shame that this is taking place in our country. Um, the trending on Twitter afterwards was, this is not us. And then there was some pushback to that because people were saying, you know, yes, some of us are privileged enough not to have this impact us on a daily basis. But this is a rally that was based around ostensibly the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee, a Confederate general whose statue sits in numerous cities and towns throughout the country, some of which were not part of the Confederacy. Um, This is a part of American life. And I just, going back to this documentary, what it did so well was capture that, capture that visceral motion. Again, there's no narrator. These are pictures and audio and interviews that just took place over this 48-hour period. And what Vice and its editors and L. Reeve, the journalist who carried out these interviews, deserve credit for is putting together an amazing piece of journalism, an amazing piece of film that they pulled together in 48 hours, produced this evening newscast that hit home, I think, for all of us in a way that nothing we would ever see on NBC or CBS or even a, a regular program of Vice News Tonight would. Something that I think is really important to acknowledge also about the documentary is that um, well, as we praise and acknowledge the work that Vice did on this piece, um, which I think we absolutely should, it's really important for us to acknowledge the fact that everyone in this room right now is white. Uh, Vice, like many media companies, is predominantly white. Uh, the reporter in this, in this piece was white. And... You know, and the reason that it's so shocking for so many of us who are talking about it is because much of its audience is white. But the reason that it gets us to our core, shakes us to our core, I think, is because so many of us come from a place of privilege of not having to deal with this in a way where we know how very vicious and real and large this forces in this country. Yeah, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot. It's like this was the first time that many of these people have had to confront this notion like head on and like just be witness to it because we're coming from such a place of privilege. You mean the audience of the piece? Yes, the audience, you know, again, like Christy was saying, most of the people I saw sharing it were white. Um, and. It's important to remember that this isn't news to a lot of people in this country. It's news to many white people and it's news to um, folks who haven't had to overtly deal with racism in, in their lives. Yeah, as we cover this topic of race in America and the way that racism and white supremacy is manifesting itself in the age of Trump, that is all really good stuff to keep in mind, especially for those of us who haven't dealt with these things in our daily lives. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us in the course of what's a really difficult discussion. Um, I want to thank Brennan Fitzgerald and Shea Taiefe Mohajir for joining Meg earlier, and then Meg and Christy. Thanks for being here to talk through all of this with us. 
Oh, thank you. This is an important conversation, one that will continue in the coming weeks, months, years. It's not going anywhere. It is not, uh, unfortunately. But we encourage you to go check out the coverage. We really do have some some really insightful and, I thought, impressive pieces up about this topic at CJR, about the coverage of Charlottesville, from what it was like to be there to the language we use to discuss it. Um, check that and all the other coverage out at CJR.org. And as always, please leave us a review, feedback, rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your audio. We appreciate the support, and we'll see you next week.